invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. If you're using the red Bibles, the page number is printed for you in the bulletin. Isn't God amazing? If you were here for Sunday school, uh, you're going to hear a great deal of overlap uh, from what you heard there about Jesus and who he is and what he's accomplished. Keith and I uh, did not put our heads together about that, uh, but the Lord brings those things together in ways that are just, you have to stand back and say it's purely his work and it is amazing. The passage we're looking at today is John chapter 5 beginning in verse 18 and going down to the verse 30. Uh, Just to remind you, because today's passage is really a continuation of what you looked at last week, the beginning of chapter 5, you saw last week about Jesus healing the man near the pool of Bethsaida, and uh, he did it on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish religious authorities were upset because Jesus had broken one of their man-made rules of working on the Sabbath in that particular way by healing this man, of bringing life to this, to this man. But then you saw at the end of the passage last week and going into verse 18 that Jesus, as he explained that he had every right to heal and to work on the Sabbath because his father worked, And we saw that the Jewish religious authorities were now having an even greater grievance with Jesus. It wasn't just that he had healed on the Sabbath. Now he was claiming God as his father. He was actually claiming that he was equal with God. Now, what Jesus could have done at that moment is he could have backed away. He could have left. He could have let things die down. He could have uh, caused there not to be such a stir. But what did he do? He doubled down. And telling them exactly who he is and exactly what he was there to do. We read that in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel for as the father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the son gives life to whom he will for the father judges no one. But has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, these are high and mighty words. And we want to understand what Jesus is saying here. 
pray that your spirit be at work and causing us to understand, but more than just understanding, that you would cause us to deepen our belief in our Savior, that you would also deepen our love for him, and that as you do that, you would enable us, you would empower us, you would motivate us, you would strengthen us in this week to come to love and obey him. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a moment where a decision you were going to make was the decision between life and death? This past summer, Stephanie and I went to a wedding of our niece out in Fort Collins, Colorado, or that area. And so we decided uh, that we would go out a few days earlier uh, than the wedding and uh, do some hiking. And we went to the Rocky Mountain National Park. It was the first time ever going there, and we did some hiking for a few days before the wedding. Now, neither of us are very experienced hikers at all. Uh, we just did some of the, the baby hikes in the, in the park, in Rocky Mountain National Park. We certainly didn't even think about doing any of the 14ers, the 14,000-foot the peaks uh, in, uh, in the park. We went to one of the trails, I can't remember the name of it, but we got there, got out of the car, and got to where the trail started, and I realized this was literally a paved path level with the ground that went basically around a lake. It was beautiful. Uh, you could walk on the pavement, and there were b- uh, benches you could stop and just take in all of the beauty, and we, we did that trail. But then we noticed that you could also, at the same place, you could then go up into an area that was above the lake. A, a, a trail that would lead you over some rocks and into the woods. And it was this beautiful overlook several hundred feet above the lake. And so we decided to do that. And so we began to climb up and we climbed over the rocks and we climbed through the trees. And eventually we realized we had lost the trail. Uh, we couldn't find it. We looked around. It wasn't clearly marked. We were the only ones up there. Nobody else was walking around at that very moment. Uh, and so we lost the trail. But it wasn't a life or death moment. We could see where the trail began. We could see where we were supposed to end. And it was just a matter of time before we could work our way back down to uh, the place that we were supposed to be and to get on to the trail. It certainly was not a matter of life or death. When I got home from our vacation, I started watching some YouTube videos that people had posted uh, who had videoed themselves summiting Mount Meeker and Long's Peak, which are the two tallest peaks in Rocky Mountain National Park, both almost 14,000 feet. It was way more involved than our little baby hikes that we went on. Uh, There were a lot more uh, dangerous things that people were going on, Uh, much harder climbing, scarier. There were even some precipices that were particularly scary and dangerous. But even so, if you were a skilled hiker, an experienced hiker, even Mount Meeker in Long's Peak would not be a matter of life or death for you. Some of you have watched the movie Everest. It's a 2015 movie based on the true story of an event that took place in 1996 where a climbing expedition was seeking to summit Mount Everest. As you know, Mount Everest is the highest mountain above sea level in the world, over 29,000 feet tall, 
more than twice the height of the two type top peaks in Rocky Mountain National Park. It's located along the border of China and Nepal. And the movie tells the story of several climbing expeditions who were seeking to make the summit of the 29,000-foot peak. They dealt with altitude sickness. They dealt with high-altitude pulmonary edema. They dealt with hypoxia. And then some incredibly bad winter weather rolled in, and a number of the climbers were stuck, stranded on the mountain. Rescue attempts were made, but the weather was too severe and eventually several of the climbers died. Many others were injured or badly hurt. And to date, I looked it up this past week, to date, at least 310 people have died seeking to summit Mount Everest. Climbing Mount Everest can truly be a life or death experience. I would suggest to you that the text we're looking at today is a Mount Everest text. It is a matter of life or death. Now, why do I say that? Today's text is the longest uninterrupted self-description by Jesus of who he is and what he came to do, how he relates to the Father. And he tells us clearly in this text that he is God. What you do with what Jesus says in these verses is a life or death situation. Jesus says if you hear and you believe him, you get life, you get eternal life. You are free from condemnation now and forever. But if you don't hear and believe Jesus, he says far from getting life, you actually get death. Judgment. Condemnation. Forever. This is not just an academic exercise of reading high, grandiose, seminary-level theology of the doctrine of Christ or the, or the Trinity. What Jesus is saying in these verses is of the utmost importance to anyone who would read these words. If Jesus is not who he claimed to be, if Jesus is not God, you do not have salvation. You are on your own to pay for your sins. And as Paul tells us in Corinthians, if Jesus is not who he said he was, if Jesus is not God, then any who would believe in him are the most to be pitied. Today, I want us to look at two things from this passage. I didn't get uh, the outline into the office on time this week, so there's not an outline in your bulletin, but it's simple enough. We're going to look at two things. First of all, we're going to look at what Jesus tells us about the person of the Son, about who he is. And then secondly, we'll look and see what Jesus says about the work of the Son, what he does. So first of all, what does Jesus tell us? about the person of the Son, about who He is. There are four things in particular that Jesus says here in these verses and that John records about the person of Jesus. And Jesus and John wanted us to see it clearly and even to remember these things easily. And so they gave us a visual key, a visual uh, clue, so we would be able to see these four things. And all you need to do is look for the little word for, F-O-R. 
You'll see it four times in verses 19 through 23. You can see it at the end of verse 19. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. You can see it again at the beginning of verse 20. For the Father loves the Son. Again at the verse of, uh, beginning of verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead. And then the fourth for is in verse 22. For the Father judges no one. What, are, what is Jesus telling us about who he is? The first is in verse 19. The first four is there. For the Son does as the Father. That's telling us several things. It's telling us several things about the person of Jesus. The first is this, that the Son is in complete unity with the Father. There is no discord. There is no disunity. There is no competition between the Father and the Son. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. They have unity in their purposes. They have unity in their accomplishment of those purposes. There never has been, there never is, and there never will be a disagreement between the Father and the Son. You may be aware of something that took place this week on Monday night, during Monday night football game between the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals. It was just several minutes into the first quarter of the football game. And what looked to be a rather routine tackle of uh, one of the Bengals players by one of the Bills players turned in to be something much more serious. A young man named Damar Hamlin, a defensive safety for the Bills, tackled a Bengals player with the ball. It looked very routine. It looked very normal. And if you were watching it live, they didn't replay it very often after the fact, but if you were watching it live, what you saw was DeMar Hamlin tackle the player and then get up. And as he stood up, he collapsed. He fell back onto his back on the field. He had a heart attack. 24-year-old football player. Play stopped. And the players and the coaches, as they began to hear and learn how serious the situation was, they began to come onto the field together, both teams, encircling the player. You saw football players weeping as they saw the medical people from the two teams seeking to tend to DeMar Hamlin. There was shock and they were all stunned. Eventually an ambulance was brought out onto the field and paramedics began to work on DeMar Hamlin. They had to resuscitate him. They worked on him for about 30 minutes. And eventually he was stable enough to put into the ambulance and rush off to a local hospital. And when they got to the hospital, they had to resuscitate him again. As the ambulance drove off, the, the players and the coaches and the fans and the commentators, nobody knew. Nobody knew the fate of this 24-year-old Man, everyone was just standing around and eventually the, the high ups in the National Football League, the, the executives, they had to make a decision about what to do about the football game. It was actually an important football game. It had ramifications for the upcoming playoffs. And so they had to decide what were they going to do. And so the executives of the NFL decided, well, here's what we'll do. We'll give everybody a five minute break. Let, everybody, let the players warm up again and then we'll resume the game. Well, the players and the coaches were in no mind to begin a football game again as they watched this young man carted off the field. And so what you saw were the players and the coaches huddling together. And then came the announcement. 
no, we are not going to continue the football game. The players and the coaches left the field and went into the locker room and didn't return. Eventually, the executives changed their minds and they suspended the game. Now, DeMar Hamlin is still in the hospital. He has been taken off of the ventilator that he was on. He's breathing on his own. He's conscious. And he's hoping to make a, a slow but a full recovery. But I tell you this story to tell you this. That kind of disagreement between the executives and the players and the coaches never happens between the father and the son. The father never says no to the son. The son never says no to the father. They are in complete and perfect unity, in complete agreement with one another in all things and at all times. This is what Jesus is telling us when he tells us in verse 19 that the son does as the father does. They are in complete unity with, with, with one another. But that also tells us that the son is equal with the father. The only way that the son could do what the father does is if the son is equally God. The son is equal in power and glory with the father. We confessed that earlier with the Westminster Shorter, Chism, uh, Shorter Catechism questions. What the father has the power and the ability to do, the son has the power and the ability to do. What glory is due to the father, the same glory is due to the son. The father is God and the son is God and the father is not the son and the son is not the father, but they are both equally God. And the Jewish authorities understood exactly what Jesus was saying because they wanted to kill him for it. And eventually they did. The son does as the father does. That shows us that the son is in complete unity with the father, but it also shows us the son is equal with the father. And one other thing it shows us is this language here of apprenticeship. The end of verse 19, we see that the son sees what the father is doing and does what the father is doing. You see it again at the end of verse 20. The father shows the son all that he is doing. It's it's the sense of what it must have been like for Jesus to grow up in the home of a carpenter. Joseph would have showed Jesus, kind of taking him under his wing as an apprentice, so to speak, would have showed him how to do carpentry, how to use the tools and how to put things together. And so, too, Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, sees what God the Father does and does it as well. Now, before we look at the other three fours here, just reflecting on this truth here. That the son does as the father does. The son is in unity with the father. He's equal with the father. All of this truth is good news for those who are in Christ. Because we never have to doubt and we never have to worry that the work that was accomplished by the son won't be accepted by the father. Christ's atoning work on the cross is the unified plan of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working in perfect harmony and unity and agreement to accomplish and to eternally secure our inheritance. That is good news for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Jesus goes on and says several other things about who he is. You see the second four at the beginning of verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him. So that you may marvel. 
The second four shows us that Jesus is a son who is loved by his father. Here is the reason for the father and the son being so unified. Here is the reason why they are never at odds with each other, why there is never any discord between the father and the son. It is because the father loves the son and the son is perfectly loved by the father. The son is eternally loved, the father and the son in constant and perpetual communion and fellowship of love. This is the love that our love is based on. Our love for others pales in comparison to it because our love is imperfect, inconsistent, disrupted by sin, and fickle. But the love between the Father and the Son is perfect. It is without fault. It never fails. It never wavers. It never falters. And it never stops. Who is Jesus? He is a Son that is loved by His Father. The third four is in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. What Jesus is telling us here about Himself is that He is the source of life. He is clearly stating who He is. He is stating that He is fully God. That He is God in the flesh. That He is Emmanuel. In the Old Testament and in the Jewish law, it was clearly stated that only God Himself had the power to raise the dead and to give life. And here, Jesus says that just as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so too the Son gives life. And He does it to whomever He wants. We certainly saw that demonstrated last week at the beginning part of chapter 5. Jesus healed the man at the pool. He brought life into the life of the man. It's also certainly a foreshadowing of what's coming up in John chapter 11 when Jesus will raise his friend Lazarus from the from the dead. Jesus will have the tomb opened and he will say, Lazarus, come out of the tomb, come out of death into life because I am the resurrection and the life. And Lazarus came out. He came to life at the word of the of power of Jesus, the son, Lazarus came to life. These are examples that we are given here of people being given physical life, that Jesus is the source of physical life. But I want you to notice also as we see the fourth four, that he has the power and the authority not only to give life physically, but to give it spiritually. You see it in the fourth four statement beginning in verse 22. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The fourth four shows us Jesus telling us that who he is is that he is the judge. The Son is the judge. He is given authority to judge the living and the dead. He not only gives physical life to whomever he wants, he not only is able to heal the physical body, but he gives spiritual, eternal life to whomever he wants because he's the judge. At the end of history, all of humanity will stand before Jesus the Son and the judge of all mankind will render verdict. We will face his judgment because he has been given the authority to judge. And notice why the Father gives the authority to judge to Jesus the Son. We're told in verse 23, it's so that Jesus gets all the honor. 
Just as they honor the Father, so the Son will be honored just the same. This is the person of the Son. This is who Jesus is telling us that He is. He is in complete unity with the Father. He and the Father are one. They are equal in power and authority and glory. He is eternally and perfectly loved by the Father. He is in perfect communion and fellowship of love between the, there is a perfect union and, and uh, communion and fellowship of love between the Father and the Son. He is the life giver. He is the one who gives life and brings the dead to life. And he is the judge, the judge that receives all honor that the Father receives as well. Now, obviously, as we're looking here at verses 19 through 23 and what Jesus is telling us about who he is, about his person, we're also seeing a lot of things here in these verses about the work of the Son and the things that he does. But we see that even more as Jesus continues in verses 24 through 30. He gives us even more detail about the work of the Son, what he does. And notice one of the things that he says he does is that he gains eternal life for his people. You can see that in verses 24 and 25. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus uses these words, truly, truly, or if you grew up on an older translation, verily, verily. It means listen up. Pay attention. What I'm about to say is true and certain and important, and you need to take heed. Whoever hears Jesus' word and whoever believes in the Father and the Son has eternal life, he says. Whoever hears Jesus' Jesus's word and believes in him does not come into judgment, but passes from death into life. You have to hear his word. And by word, it means the entirety of Jesus' word, the entirety of the word of God. It means the entirety of the good news of the gospel, all of the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. You must hear the word of Jesus, but hearing it is not enough. He says you also must believe. Believe the Father. Believe the Son. Not just hear about Jesus, but so hear and believe it that you put your hope and trust and faith in Jesus. Jesus says in verse 25 again with this truly, truly, the hour is now. The Son of God had arrived and to those who hear, He gives life. I want you to notice in verses 24 and 25, these are present tense statements. If you hear Jesus and you believe Jesus, notice what it says. You have eternal life now. You have crossed from death to life now. It's a present reality for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have eternal life right now. Right now, you are not facing eternal judgment. Right now, you have crossed from death to life. And if you are here and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you live here and now with this reality. And so it must impact how you live. The reality that this is present tense should fill you with a hope and a peace that steadily pushes back 
at your doubt and at your fear. In those moments when you are doubting, in those moments when you are fearing, you go back to what Jesus said. Truly, truly, He says, you have believed in Me, you have heard My Word and believed in Me, and as a result, you have eternal life. You have now no more judgment and condemnation. That is the present reality for you. And you are to take that truth and to push into your fears and into your doubts. But it also ought to fill you, believer, with motivation and strength to push into your temptation and your sin. This is who you are. You are someone who is alive in Christ. You are someone who no longer faces condemnation and judgment. You are someone who has passed from death to life. That is who you are now. That should cause you to live like who you are. It should motivate you. It should empower you. It should strengthen you to live like who you are. But if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, then I want you to hear this wonderful word for you today. Today, right now, if you hear Jesus' word and you believe in Him, you too have eternal life at this very moment. You too now face no judgment or condemnation. You too have crossed from death to life. I want you to notice here that Jesus tells us about His work of gaining eternal life for His people now. But He also says something else as we go on. We have the certainty of eternal life now, but we also have the certainty of it in the future. Jesus not only works to gain us life now, eternal life now, He is also the one that executes judgment at the end of time. We see that in verses 26 through 29. For as the Father has life in Himself, so he, all, he has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus here is now talking about the work that He does at the end of time, at His second coming. And this, these words and these verses are meant to be a great source of comfort and hope for the people of God. The Son has gained eternal life for His people, and because He is the judge who will execute judgment for people at the end of time, we have great hope. He is the Son of Man. That's what we're told here in these verses takes us back to Daniel chapter 7, where the Ancient of Days gives the authority and the power to rule and to reign and to judge to the Son of Man. And Jesus is saying, that is me. I am the Son of Man, and I now have the authority and power and rule to reign over and to judge. And that is, that is a source of hope for those who already now have that eternal life. The one who will judge you is the one who has gained that eternal life for you already. There's a lot of confusion about what happens at death. But I think in many places in the scriptures, what happens after death is pretty clearly laid out for us. For everybody, when we die, our, our souls are separated from our bodies. The bodies rest here on earth in the ground. But our souls 
do not just cease to exist. They also don't stay here on earth. The moment of death, they are immediately taken to one of two places. Those who have heard and believed Jesus were told our souls are with Him in glory. As Paul says, we are away from the body, but at home in the presence of our Savior. But for those who do not hear and do not believe, for those who have rejected Jesus, their souls are taken to a place of unbearable torment and agony. These are not the final heaven or hell. But in reality, we are truly with Jesus in glory if we have heard and believed Him, or we are apart from Jesus in torment if we have rejected Him. And then, at the second coming, when Jesus returns, we read of what it says in verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. At the second coming, Jesus will utter the word of his power and everyone, those who are dead, those who are alive, those who are believers, those who are unbelievers, all will be resurrected. They will hear the voice of the Son. Those who are in the tombs, those who are in the graves, those who have been buried, those who have been cremated will come to life. And the souls of all will be reunited with new eternal bodies. And then the final judgment will be rendered. And as Jesus says in verse 29, those who have done good go to the resurrection of life, eternal life, entrance into the new heaven and new earth. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, eternal torment and hell. Now, at this point, you might be saying, wait a minute. This sounds an awful lot like my destiny is based on my good works. Whenever we come to a passage that is hard to understand or might be confusing to us, the best thing to do is to think about other places in the Scripture that speak about this very same thing that help us to understand what we're reading here. And we don't have to go very far, do we? Because just look back at verse 24. What did Jesus say? If you hear and you believe, you have eternal life. If you hear and you believe, you no longer have judgment. But we can think of other places as well. Paul says in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We can think about what John says in his epistle in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Or we can think of what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Bible is clear. We are saved. We are given eternal life, not based on our good works, but based purely on his grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is not a result of works. It is a result of the finished work of Jesus Christ. But for all of those who are truly in Christ, we have been created in Jesus to do good works. 
And God has prepared those for us to do. And because we are now a new creation in Christ, our works are declared good in God's sight. You have the righteousness of Jesus Christ that clothes all of your work. And they will be seen at the second coming. And you will be ushered into the resurrection of life. You will not come into judgment. Your judgment has already been put on Jesus and he died so that you get life. As we're going to sing in just a little bit in our final hymn, Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, thy sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. He shall raise me from the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. That's all true for the believer, for those who hear and believe Jesus. But for those who don't hear, those who don't believe, who reject Jesus, then your works will be seen and judged when Jesus returns. I think these are the greater things that Jesus mentions in verse 20. If anyone thought that the healing of the man at the pool was great, or the other miracles that Jesus was going to do were great things, it's as if Jesus is saying, you haven't seen anything yet. The cross is coming. My death is coming. My resurrection from the grave is coming. My ruling as judge at the end of time is coming. These are the greater things And he says, don't marvel at them. In other words, don't think that this is too far-fetched to happen. Believe it and be sober about it. There's one last thing that Jesus tells us here in these verses about his work. It's in verse 30. Part of his work is to accomplish the will of his Father. Verse 30 ends up as being a, a bookend for our whole passage. Because if you look at verse 19 and how the passage began, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. And then we come to verse 30 and Jesus again speaking says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Here is the final thing in the passage that we see about the work that Jesus did. He perfectly did and always perfectly does the will of his father. It summarizes the entire argument in these verses. Jesus is God. And as the son of God, he does the will of God, the father. They are indeed in perfect unity of purpose and the accomplishment of that purpose. I would guess that many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's well-known trilemma. It goes something like this. As you consider the claims of Jesus Christ, of what he said about who he is, about what he accomplished, there really are only three possible responses that you can have. One, Jesus is a lunatic. He's crazy. He's delusional. He's deceived. That's one possible response. A second response is not that he's a lunatic, but that he's a liar. He's not deceived. He's actually a deceiver. He knew that he wasn't who he claimed to be, and he just lied about it. The third response is that he's Lord. That he is who he claimed to be. That Jesus is God. He is fully God and fully man. He is the Lord and Savior of the world. He is the judge at the end of time. Those are the only choices that you have. 
I was reminded this past week that Lewis actually probably got that trilemma idea from another man who lived about 100 years before him, a Scottish pastor named John Duncan, sometimes referred to as John Rabbi Duncan. He said this, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or was himself deluded and self-deceived or he was divine. There is no getting out of the trilemma. It is inexorable, meaning it's impossible to get out of it. Those are the only three options. And the Jewish religious authorities knew what Jesus was claiming, that he was God in the flesh, that he was the only source of salvation, and they sought to kill him for it, and eventually they did. So the question remains for us as we finish today. Do we hear and believe Jesus? Do we embrace Him by grace through faith as our Lord and Savior or not? For those who are unbelievers, those who are not Christians, there is no more important question for you to answer today. Hear the word of Jesus. Believe in Him. Believe in the one who sent him and know that apart from hearing and believing Jesus, judgment is coming. It is certain and it is horrible. But by hearing and believing Jesus today, that judgment is removed forever for you. And you are brought from death to life. But for Christians, for believers, for those who have heard and believed Jesus... And first of all, I want you to be encouraged. Jesus is God. And because Jesus is God, He alone can solve our greatest problem. Our sin and our need for reconciliation with our Father in Heaven. Our problem was so big that only God Himself could solve it. And since Jesus is God, He did it through the cross and the resurrection. And that means for you, believer in Christ... You can rest. You can rest from your worries and your doubt. Your salvation is safe and secure. You can rest from your attempts to earn or to merit God's acceptance. You have it already. You can never lose it. You can rest from your fears because now there is no condemnation. There is no judgment for you because you are in Christ Jesus. So be encouraged. But finally... Believer in Christ, I want you to be challenged. came across a quote this week from one of the commentators I was looking at, also a pastor in the Indiana, Indianapolis area named Gordon Ketty. As he was reflecting on this passage and then reflecting on how Jesus responded to them pushing back on him, listen to what he wrote. In a world of such studied subjectivism and relentless commitment to the invisibility of plain evidence... The tendency of the Christian is often to give up the active promotion of biblical truth and to assume a passive stance, being ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you, but only if backed against the wall. The fact that Jesus' hearers were predisposed to reject the evidence did not prevent our Lord from telling people who he was and what he had come to do. His ministry on earth saw a progressive unfolding of his person and work as the promised Messiah. 
In the face of rising opposition, he revealed more of himself and his claims. He challenged consciences and rebuked pride. He commanded repentance and offered consolation. He uttered sentences of the most condign punishment upon the unbelieving and proclaimed the kingdom of heaven for all who would follow him in heartfelt discipleship. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to be challenged by these words. It is today the case, and it is only going to become more the case, that it is going to be harder and harder to name and to say the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ that we see in this passage. As God's people, we must not back down from what is true. We must hold to these truths, not passively, not shrinking back from declaring what is true about who Jesus is and what he has done, even if that means it brings persecution to us. We must hold these truths unswervingly and relentlessly and without apology or excuse and with no timidity. But we also must hold these truths with humility. And proclaim these things with humility. And always remembering that those to whom we proclaim the truth and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ are people who are full of dignity and worthy of respect because they are, they are fellow image bearers of the one true God. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are high and lofty words of our Savior. I pray that you would fill us with a sense of awe and wonder as we contemplate who he is and all that he has accomplished. These words are too high for us. They are too great for us. But we pray that through the work of the Spirit who enabled John to record these words that Jesus said, who the spirit who has preserved these words so that we can be reading the word of Jesus today. We pray for that same spirit to take these words and to mold them into our hearts and our minds in such a way that we are changed because of believing them. We ask you, we ask for you to do this because we ask it in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.